Well, let's pray uh, as we open the Word of God once again. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come this morning shouting for joy to you, singing the glory of your name, saying to you how awesome are you, how awesome are your deeds, how great is your character and your ways in all the earth. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for uh, sustaining each of us into another new year to be on mission for you and for the gospel. Lord, this morning as we open your word, we pray your spirit's power and your spirit's attendance uh, that you would be speaking to us, Lord, through your word to our minds and hearts, working the transformation that we read about earlier from glory to glory so that each of us looks more and more like Jesus. We pray, dear God, that as we leave this morning, that you would, if it's your pleasure to challenge us, to bring us to a new level of discipleship, whatever your pleasure is to do, that you would do that. And we pray your help, Lord, now as we dig into your word, in Jesus' name, amen. I notice these days when I watch uh, NHL hockey games, as I do from time to time, that on the bench before the game, when they pan through the players, some of them are taking smelling salts uh, just to get the adrenaline going and get uh, energized for the game. Uh, we're starting this morning with something of a history lesson surrounding Philippi. So if you've brought smelling salts uh, in order to stay awake, you can certainly take them out and, and use them at this point. Um, all kidding aside, let's get into this. So 2,376 years ago, so we're at the year 356 B.C., that's a long time ago. There were two people groups who were fighting in the territory known today as Northern Greece. Uh, one of those people groups decided in the midst of the conflict to appeal to the Macedonian king for help in their cause. And that Macedonian king was named Philip. King Philip arrived with his troops and he effectively ended the conflict that had been happening. And because that area was rich in silver and in gold and in copper, Philip seized on the opportunity while he was there, and he founded a city which he named after himself. The city became known as Philippi. Well, not quite 200 years after that, the Macedonians were soundly defeated by the upstart Romans. So that the city of Philippi now fell into Roman hands. And then, just over 100 years forward after that, a very important Roman-Republican battle took place at Philippi, which resulted in a number of things, but one of the things it resulted in was the Romans fully colonizing the city of Philippi. Uh, and they also began to settle a number of their military veterans in the city, along with several Italian farmers. Up until that time, the city of Philippi had largely been Greek. Greek in its demographic, Greek in its culture, but now with the Roman colonization of the city, the city changed. It became heavily overlaid with Roman influence and Roman culture and Roman law. 
Stephen Fowle is a New Testament scholar who helps us get some of the picture of Philippi at this point. So this is just around the time of the first century A.D. rolling around. Fowle says this, At this time Philippi was granted Italian legal status, exempting its colonists from various taxes, and granting them citizenship and various land rights and privileges. He says, Romans and Roman institutions exercised an unusual amount of influence. So if you had lived in Philippi right near the beginning of the first century, it would have seemed like what Bruce Lowe has called a Rome away from Rome. Years ago, I traveled down uh, to Holland, Michigan. I don't know if you've ever been to Holland, Michigan. But the whole city is purposely done up with heavy Dutch influence and Dutch imagery. So there are tulips. If you go at the right time of year, tulips everywhere you look. Lots of windmills, just like you'd see over in Holland. It's like you're in the Netherlands, even though you're right there in uh, western Michigan. Well, being in Philippi around the first century A.D. was just like being in Rome. You had in the city Roman arches, and you had uh, Roman bathhouses, and Roman temples, and a good deal of Roman architecture everywhere uh, you look. By one estimate, by the time of the mid-first century, fully 40% of the population of Philippi were Roman citizens most of whom would have been speaking Latin, with the remaining 60% of the city being non-Roman people who spoke Greek. So the Roman influence in Philippi at the beginning of the first century was very hard to miss if you were there. Now, on the level of religion, we're setting the stage here for the book of Philippians, right? On the level of religion in Philippi in the first century, it really was a mixed bag. So you have the worship of the standard Olympian gods like Zeus and Poseidon and Athena. But then you also had the worship of Roman gods like Jupiter and Minerva, etc. Along with the worship of Egyptian gods like Isis and Serapis. Not to mention the fact that you had emperor worship. So Caesar himself was venerated as a god. So it was a very religiously diverse city. And in this city, we should also note that there was a pretty negligible amount, small population of Jewish folks. Not many Jews could be found in Philippi. In fact, there was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. This was far and away a Gentile city. Just as a further note, just so we can get the picture, as we develop our picture of Philippi in the first century, when we say city of Philippi, keep in mind that as Paul wrote the letter of the letter we call Philippians to the Philippian church, the population of Philippi at that time would have been between 10,000 and 15,000. So a small city, at least by modern standards. Now, as for the Apostle Paul, it was the vision that he had of the Macedonian man, which we have in Acts chapter 16, which if you have your pew Bible and want to turn there, 
Uh, we'll be kind of talking about Acts 16 for a minute. Um, it's on page 1073 of your pew Bible, Acts chapter 16. It was that vision of the Macedonian man that prompted Paul to set sail in A.D. 51, the year 51, along with Silas and Timothy and Luke, and they set sail from Asia Minor up to what we now call Europe. So at the top center of the map on the screen there, uh, you see the first leg, the first leg, the initial leg of Paul's second missionary journey from Troas up to Philippi. Paul's first real stop on that second missionary journey was the Roman colony of Philippi. The church that would be founded at Philippi had the distinction of becoming the first local church of Jesus Christ on European soil. The very first church on, on European soil. Now in Acts 16, we get details concerning the initial founding of the church in Philippi. The first person who came in contact with Paul and the others as they arrived there is a woman named Lydia. Lydia, Lydia is sitting here today with us, <laughs> different Lydia. Lydia was gathered with a few other women at the side of a river. They were gathered there for prayer. Again, no Jewish synagogue to go to, so they're gathered there for prayer. And Lydia is described in Acts 16 as a couple of things. First, a dealer in purple cloth and a God-fearer a worshiper of God. The fact that Lydia dealt in purple cloth means that she was well off. Because fabrics that had been dyed with the purple juice of the matter root were expensive pieces of cloth. So we can surmise that Lydia was a woman of means. Uh, she was one of the many merchants in Philippi who sold and traded their goods to merchants who were coming into the city. By the time these events of Acts 16 were unfolding, uh, those gold and silver and copper mines that we mentioned earlier around the city uh, that King Philip had once coveted, those mines had long been exhausted. However, Philippi was fortuitously located on what is called the Via Ignatia. The Via Ignatia was that great east-to-west road in northern Greece that facilitated a steady flow of trade in that whole area. So people in Philippi, like Lydia, could trade and sell their products to others who would come through town, and they could also buy uh, from those merchants. Some of the merchants had come from distant places with exotic goods. Lydia sold and traded her purple cloth and she did very well for herself, no doubt. But Lydia is also described, notice, she's also described in Acts 16 as a God-fearer. That is, she was one who feared, revered the God of the Jews. By the time Paul arrived there to preach at the riverside in Philippi, God had already been preparing Lydia to hear the gospel. And in Acts 16, verses 14 and 15, we learn that her heart was open to the gospel and she was baptized. And friends, this is the initial birth moment right here in Acts chapter 16 of the Philippian church. 
Ten years after that initial founding of the Philippian church, there's much more we could say about Acts 16, but for now we'll go ten years hence. Ten years later, Paul writes the letter that we know as Philippians to the church in Philippi. During that ten-year intervening period that happened between the founding of the Philippian church and Paul writing the letter that we call Philippians, Paul had visited the Philippians on at least two other occasions that we know about. But now at the 10-year mark, Paul is writing them this letter. And Paul writes this letter to the Philippians from his position in prison. We can't be 100% sure of the location of the prison that Paul was in at this point, but we know from the internal evidence of the letter to the Philippians itself that Paul was indeed in prison as he wrote this letter to the Philippian church. Now there are three or four options that scholars have argued for concerning the location of Paul's imprisonment at the time when he wrote Philippians. The two strongest arguments can be made for either Ephesus or Rome. And to my mind, Rome is slightly to be preferred uh, to over, over Ephesus. So I contend, as we go through Philippians, I'm contending uh, that Paul was imprisoned at, in Rome as he wrote this letter. We're not sure what the official charge was against the Apostle Paul that landed him in prison. Stephen Fowle suggests that it may have been a charge called maestas, which was the charge of diminishing the majesty of the emperor of Rome. Diminishing the majesty of the emperor of Rome. So by his preaching of the Lord Jesus, Paul may have been charged with diminishing the honor of Lord Caesar, and so Paul was thrown in prison. Now let's think about the Roman prison just for a minute. The model of an ancient Roman prison was different than our modern prisons. We have to understand that. The premise of modern prisons is to rehabilitate prisoners. The idea of the ancient Roman prison, by contrast, was that it was essentially a holding tank. So you were put there in prison to wait while the Roman Empire decided on whether you should be executed or whether you should be freed. And conditions in Roman prisons were not altogether pretty. Uh, the Roman philosopher Seneca, Seneca was actually a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, Seneca once said that the two most grievous fears in life, the two most grievous fears in life are death and imprisonment. Gives you an idea of how bad prisons were. So you didn't want to end up in a Roman prison because it so often would end in torture and in execution. And while you were in prison also, they did not feed you in a Roman prison. You had to rely on the kindness of people coming around who you knew if you wanted to eat while you were in prison. Paul writes the letter to the Philippians from a less than happy circumstance, the circumstance of Roman prison in about A.D. 61. That's when he's writing this letter. And why does he write this letter to the Philippian believers? What was the occasion uh, 
or the occasions for his writing. Well, the story is on screen there. Let's go through it just briefly. The believers in Philippi had learned that Paul was in prison. They'd caught wind of it. So the Philippian believers decided that they would send a gift to Paul out of their compassion and godly kindness. And they would send that gift by means of a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus would travel to the prison where Paul was to deliver the gift. Now, somewhere on that journey, and if Epaphroditus was traveling from Philippi to Rome, it would be a journey of at least four weeks, but probably more like five or six weeks. Somewhere on that journey, Epaphroditus fell ill. And then the Philippians caught wind of this, that their messenger had fallen ill. And the fact that the Philippians had learned of Epaphroditus' illness made Epaphroditus himself upset. Now, Epaphroditus by this time had now made it to where Paul was. And so now Paul was sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, presumably... Epaphroditus had been sent to Paul to stay on with Paul. But now Paul was sending him back to Philippi and Paul would send a letter back to the Philippians with Epaphroditus when he went back. The letter would explain how he was faring in prison. In the letter, he would also thank them for the gift that they had sent to him. Paul would also write to encourage the Philippians, this is a very contemporary point, to encourage the Philippians as they lived and ministered as a minority, and in their case, a persecuted minority in the city of Philippi. And Paul was also writing to help the Philippians with some internal divisive matters that had begun begun to crop up in their church. Now, with all of that as a brief, some of you say that wasn't so brief, all of that as a brief and selective background to Philippians, let's go for the rest of our time this morning just to the first two verses of the letter itself. Philippians chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 on page 1138 of your pew Bible, if you're looking at your pew Bible, 1138. Now, when you write an email to someone, What is your standard greeting at the beginning and your standard sign-off at the end? You don't have to name it or call it out right now, but normally we begin an email or a letter with something like, dear so-and-so, right? Or, hey, so-and-so, hey, Brent. I got an email this week that said, hey, Brent, and then it went into it. And And then usually we sign the message at the end with something like, regards, or best, or blessings, or as Charles usually does, cheers, right? It's a great way to end an email. However loose our conventions may be, we do follow certain conventions as we open emails and letters and as we close them. Well, so did Paul in his day. The first two verses of Philippians are the salutation section of the letter, and Paul follows the typical Greco-Roman pattern of uh, writing a salutation. But in his case, he Christianizes the salutation so that it has a decidedly and distinctly Christ-centered flavor about it. 
And I hope to show you here uh, that these first two verses are more than just a sort of perfunctory or routine opening. As John Kitchen reminds us, he says, the Holy Spirit does not inspire perfunctory. He does not inspire routine. All that he has spoken, including these two opening verses of Philippians, is profound and calculated for the good of the faith-filled listener. Close quote. So friends, we would do well to linger, just for the rest of our time today, to linger on these opening two verses. Verse 1 opens the letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And immediately we ask the question, why is Timothy's name included here at the start of the letter, along with Paul's name? Is Timothy to be understood as co-authoring this letter with Paul? And the answer is no. There isn't any evidence anywhere to suggest that Timothy co-authored Philippians, and so we probably we should not understand it that way. The letter was authored only by Paul. And neither is there any real evidence that Timothy acted here as a sort of secretary to Paul as Paul wrote Philippians. Probably his name is included here simply because Timothy was with Paul at this moment, during Paul's imprisonment. Perhaps Timothy was there to help care for Paul, bring him food even. And Timothy was well known to the Philippians. Timothy was well loved by the Philippians, having preached in and around Macedonia and Achaia in times prior. So Paul includes his name here. Paul calls himself, notice, he calls both himself and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, but really, the more accurate translation of the Greek here is slaves. Slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, the word slaves in 2020 has very negative associations, and rightly so. But we have to be friends. We have to be very careful not to read our modern understandings of slavery back onto the New Testament text. You have to be very careful of that. Understand this, that Paul in his day could probably scarcely imagine a world without slavery. It was that prevalent. But the slavery that he knew about was not the same kind of slavery that existed in 19th century North America. In the ancient world, thousands upon thousands of people were slaves either for reasons of being captured in battle or by reason of falling into debt. And slavery was a way to pay off debt. So slavery in Paul's world, in his world of thought and in his atmosphere, slavery itself had a very different character about it than it did in the United States of the 1800s. Paul is using the word slaves here in verse 1 to describe the relationship that he and Timothy had with Jesus. Jesus was the master and Paul and Timothy were 
the slaves. That is to say that Paul and Timothy were totally at the disposal of their great benevolent master, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be Christ's slave, to be totally and utterly at his disposal. Paul and Timothy were humbly underneath their master and king, Jesus, ready and and willing to do his will. That is the idea here. Paul is getting this idea of slavery under God from both the Old Testament and also from Jesus himself. In the Old Testament, people like Moses and people like David and Joshua, each of them had been called servants or slaves of God. And Jesus had said, hadn't he? He'd said that the first among the disciples would be what? Slave of all. And that even the Son of Man, even Jesus himself, had come to serve and not to be served. So friends, if you want to model the ministry of Jesus Christ in this world, it's going to mean humble service. Amen? Being a servant and slave of the King who himself is a servant. And watch this also. The word slave, we need to see this, it gets injected, that word does, in the New Testament with a really massive dose of dignity. What do I mean? Well, when we get to Philippians 2, verse 7, Paul will tell us that Jesus himself took the form of a slave. And the word Paul uses in Philippians 2.7 is exactly the same Greek word that he uses here at Philippians 1.1. Doulos, slave. Now friends, if Jesus can be called a slave, as he is in Philippians 2.7, then certainly we, his followers, should take it as a great honor to be called slaves of Jesus Christ. As Moises Silva puts it, he says, the Greek doulos, which translates as slave, the Greek doulos, this word in Christian parlance is not an insult, but the highest commendation possible. Wow. So again, watch what happens here in the text of Scripture. God overturns understandings of things that we have imbibed by living in this world. God here redefines our language for us, doesn't he? To be a slave of Jesus is is actually the highest of commendations. It is certainly not a derogatory term for the believer, as it is a derogatory term in every other use of of the word in our world. Now what we notice is omitted from Paul's salutation in Philippians is the word... Apostle. Notice that. It's not in the salutation. Paul does not assert the fact that he is an apostle in the opening of Philippians as he does in the salutations of so many others of his letters, like Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, etc. He omits the word apostle here because probably his apostleship was not under challenge in Philippi. 
as it had been in so many other places, especially in Corinth and in Galatia. Now, in fact, the situation of the church in Philippi was much more healthy than it was in a place like Corinth. So in place of the word apostle, we notice at the beginning of the letter, Paul uses this word, slaves. And Paul continues his salutation in verse 1. To all the what? Saints. There's another word that's loaded up with barnacles that we have to try to chip off. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Uh, So we have to resist the urge here to think this. Oh, saints. That word means super spiritual, like in the Roman Catholic tradition. Only certain people are honored with sainthood because they were particularly spiritual. We have to resist that. That's decidedly not the meaning here of this word. When Paul uses the word saints here, he is referring, listen, to every single believer in Jesus Christ, not to a special class of believers. In fact, the word that Paul uses here has roots all the way back to Exodus chapter 16 or chapter 19, where God called his entire people a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The roots go all the way back to that. The word saints as Paul uses it, is describing believers. These are people who are God's possession, who because of their relationship with Jesus Christ, live a pattern of life in the world that is different and set apart from the world for the sake of the world. That's what a saint is. Saints are people who have been bought by the redeeming blood of the Lamb. Does this describe you this morning? Bought by the redeeming blood of the Lamb, set apart for His service, characterized by godly behavior. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and are walking with Him as Lord, you already, friend, are a saint. You already are. Notice that Paul addresses how many of the saints... All, now notice that word, all, right off the bat in Philippians, Paul is being inclusive of the whole entire church. All are being addressed in this letter. And as we're going to see in weeks coming, there was a threat to unity in the Philippian church. Wow, is is that odd in a church? (laughs) There's a threat to unity in the Philippian church. One of the reasons Paul writes to the Philippians is to address a festering disunity. And right as the letter opens, he uses this unifying term, all, to all the saints. It sets the stage for the work of unifying that he's going to undertake in the letter. John Kitchen has it like this. He says, to a church struggling with division... Paul now gathered up the whole of the church and dealt with them as one. All. He's setting the stage for what will come here. Now as we proceed in verse 1, I want you to look very carefully at the text. Look with me at the twofold way that Paul describes the location of each saint. That's you and that's me. These saints in Philippians, first of all, are... In Christ Jesus. That's their first location. But second of all, 
These saints are where? At Philippi. In other words, friends, we need to notice, they have two addresses. In Christ and at Philippi. They have a spiritual address in Christ, and they have a physical geographical address at Philippi. To be in Christ means what? It means to live and move and have our being in the sphere of Christ's kingship. To be in Christ is to live every hour of our existence in the realm of Christ's rule. To be in Christ is to be and to live in union with the crucified and risen King Jesus, to partake of all the benefits that He has wrought for us. And of course, friends, to be in Christ, I hope you understand, is the defining thing in a believer's life. But as believers, we also live, don't we? We also live in a physical, geographical location. Since I became a believer in 1990, I've lived as a believer in five different Canadian cities, different geographical locations. If you are a believer sitting here today, you are in Christ and you are at Montreal. God has set this thing up so that you will always have two addresses. As John Kitchen says, you have a spiritual address, you have a physical address. The spiritual address provides an identity. The physical address gives the arena of the expression of the identity. Again, you have a spiritual address and a physical address. The spiritual address, so in Christ, provides an identity. That's your identity in Christ. The physical address at Montreal, gives the arena of the expression of the identity. If you're a believer, God always has work for you to do in whatever geographical location you find yourself in, even if you don't like living there. Amen? He's planted you in a specific place, for a specific season, to be in Christ, in that particular location, serving Him in that location for His purposes and for His reasons, never lose sight of that. Never be discouraged. You are in Christ on a purposed mission wherever you are in your specific location with all its attendant frustrations. Let's go forward. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Paul specifically addresses the overseers and deacons of the Philippian church in this greeting. We don't know why he does this precisely. But the best suggestion here is that Paul wants the overseers and deacons to stand up and pay attention also to the content of the letter. There was some divisiveness, some fracture that had started to happen in the Philippian church. And Paul wants the overseers and the deacons, he wants these leaders in the church to listen to what he says as he addresses these issues. Now the term overseer in the New Testament 
is synonymous or it's equivalent to the term elder. A good little summary of what a church overseer or what, uh, what a church elder is and what he does is given to us by Matthew Harmon in his commentary. He says this, Overseers are shepherds of God's people who are examples of Christian piety and guardians of sound doctrine through their teaching and oversight of the flock. It's a pretty good little summary. Paul addresses the overseers at Philippi, but he also addresses the deacons. Deacons are servants who concentrate on serving physical needs in the congregation, and they too are to be models of Christian character. Deacons are people who work to free the elders to focus on the ministry of the word and on prayer. The leadership model of overseers and deacons, friends, is the New Testament model for church leadership. Much more to say on that, but not right now. Verse 2, Paul says, Now we would usually just kind of float over this, wouldn't we, as we're reading the Bible? Watch this, though. Grace to you. And peace. Grace to you. And peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is exactly the same blessing that Paul gives to other congregations in seven of his other New Testament letters. Paul bestows the blessing of grace on the Philippians. Now listen carefully. The fact is that you and I, doesn't matter who you are, you and I have done everything necessary in our lives to deserve the wrath of a holy God. But we get from God what we do not deserve, which is grace. Grace is the favor that amazingly, amazing grace, that amazingly God gives to demerited, undeserving sinners like you and me. That's telling us we need to wake up to grace. Paul says, grace to you and what? Peace. Now, peace here must be understood as a wholeness or a completeness in relationship. That's what it is, a wholeness or a completeness in relationship. Because of our sin before God, each of us was an enemy of God, as it says in Romans, enemies of God. But because of Christ and because of His atoning work on the cross, we have, Romans 5, peace with God. The relationship has been healed, and it's been healed through Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And then notice, very importantly, what is the source of all the grace and peace? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't start this letter by saying this, grace to you and peace from myself and Timothy. As John Kitchen comments, he says, these are not graces that arise from within the apostle himself 
or that can be drawn from some reserve of personal virtue. Rather, they must come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. The amazing, perfect, abiding peace of God the Father comes to us through Jesus Christ and through His atoning sacrificial work on the cross. Well, as we gather together the strands of what we've been meditating on this morning, as we draw this to a close now, we might summarize verses 1 and 2 by saying simply this, that in large measure these verses give us a diagram of our identity as believers in Jesus. Our identity. First of all, verse 1 tells us that as believers we are all slaves And we take that term to mean something quite different than the common understanding in the world. To be a slave of Jesus is to be on mission, on the mission of our great and blessed King. To be at His disposal and to be on His agenda with the whole of our lives, no matter where we go. We are each a slave of Jesus. Are you living fully into that part of your identity? Slave of Jesus. Second, According to verse 2, we are also saints as believers. That is to say that we are people who are called of God and set apart for His purposes, set apart for holy living for the sake of God's world. Does that part of the description resonate with you? Third in the identity of the believer, according to verse 2, is that we are in Christ Jesus. That is, as born-again believers, believers who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, we live in the sphere or in the realm of Christ's eternal, victorious kingship. Amen? We are people who operate in His kingdom and who live under His authority in Christ. Fourth in our identity, according to verse 1, is that we are at a geographical location of one kind or another all the time, as long as we live. We are at a geographical location in the entirety of our lives, at Philippi, at Montreal, in Madrid, in Saskatoon. I hope not for you, but that's one possibility. Wherever in the world we are, As believers, we are called to live out His mission on the ground. Fifth in our identity as believers is the fact, still in verse 1 now, that we have roles to play in His church. Now it may be the role of overseer or deacon or deaconess, but then again it may not be. Instead, the role may be musician. It may be counter. It may be evangelist. It may be Sunday school teacher or host or uh, pourer of communion cups or caregiver or caretaker or what have you. Each of us in Christ's church has a God-given role and He has wired each of us with a skill set to match. And then finally in sixth place, according to verse 2, as believers we are to be identified as those who have been lavished with the grace and the peace of Almighty God. We are people in this world who are no longer under the wrath of God. We are people for whom there is no condemnation. We are people who live in right relationship with God and we have a desire that others around us would come into that same relationship.
Believer, you are a slave. You are a saint. You are in Christ Jesus. You are at Montreal. You have a role in Christ's church. You have been lavished with grace and peace. So this week, I encourage you, live into your identity. Rejoice in your identity. Rejoice in what matters. Amen. We're going to take a time now, instead of our closing song, we're going to take a time of silent reflection on the word and meditation. And after a a, a good time of silence, I'll close with our benediction. Now hear the Lord's benediction. Now to you, from him who is and who was and who is to come, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, may grace and peace abound in your life. Amen. You're dismissed.